welcome to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast, where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope you leave this episode and every episode you listen to loving the weather just that little bit more. My name is Gemma. And my name is Ashling, and I'm super delighted, as always, to be here on Weather Wednesday with our gorgeous Gemma and our special guest this week is a man who has been to the place that I have wanted to go and apply for every single year. I'm me too, me too. Refused. I'm so jealous. Permanently <laughs> refused. We are here with our good friend John today and John has spent time down in the Antarctic. John, welcome to the show. We've got lots, for of, having me. lots of questions for you. So we're just going to kick away. off with the main one, which is where did the spark of joy come from for weather? What made for you weather? think I'm going to do look, I'm going to work in this. This is what I'm going to do. Oh, that is, that's a very, very uh, good and, uh, and quite a personal question. I guess it really rig- dig- digs down to my initial choices. That's why we bribed um, you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a good one. So um, yeah. Okay. So I did my first degree in uh, environmental geosciences in Cardiff and I, I was I was loving kind of diatoms right I, I, I did some studies I got to work with Dr Jenny Pite and she was amazing and really kind of sparked my interest and so I thought oh yeah I kind of like this firstly Antarctic theme and I and I could see how the climate was changing over time within these diatoms and so I what, felt, what's a diatom you're gonna have to diatom? it's basically like a little tiny bit of algae that kind of or a, or a single kind of cell thing which lives in the uh, in the antarctic uh, and basically they come in different shapes and sizes and depending on the currents and the heat uh, certain species thrive so if it's particularly cold one species will do do better than another uh, and over time you basically you can you can go through a sediment core which i got from antarctica or, or dr jenny pike got from antarctica and brought it back uh, and i was very lucky enough to take samples from this core uh, and go through like the last ice ages and, and basically sounds boring but I, I liked it which was i've already i've already got so many questions like how long is that so cool the core was it was a big core yeah yeah so, and you had to i mean she pointed me in the right direction because it was it was like a 30 meter core and she was like uh and and you need to go for this little bit here which is kind of the last ice age or around that period so what I was trying to find or, or look through it was the, how, how the diatoms uh, kind of changed in number uh, between ice ages uh, and warm periods. And so we diff- took different samples of this core uh, and were able to kind of uh, show the changes of these creatures. So there's one that looks like a pair of pants is the best way to <laughs> describe it. Uh, and when they're cold they they grow really long so they look like a full pair of trousers and and when they're like long johns yeah exactly <laughs> exactly um and when it gets too warm they just they're just not there or they don't exist or they're much shorter and there's fewer of them so uh, there'd be different species as well and you'd be looking for those and trying to make the counts and then uh, and that would help you basically identify how that kind of climate changed and it was all based off the diatoms we find today in our seas and we'd use that as a kind of proxy to, to look back at how uh, climate's changed in the past. So I feel like you've sort of cheated us there a little bit. 
I don't feel like I've gotten to the actual core of where <laughs> the love of weather came from. So I get that in the university years that you're, you know, you're very lucky to be exposed to somebody who like inspired you. Yes. What made you go there in the first place? Where, where did the, the, where did that question come from um, in your head? So go back, go back, go back. Go back even further. Um, yeah. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a gifted student I'm certainly not I'm an average student and I remember Alexi being on one of these talks saying something very similar however I would say geography has always uh come very easy to me and I I know it's not meteorology but it all kind of starts there so the moving world how everything works uh I just found it very easy to understand and and I, I I can visualize things very easily so when you say the jet stream I can actually visualize that rather but i could, i probably yeah. can't do the mathematics but i can do <laughs> this is a theme <laughs> so yeah, the, that we hear it's the <laughs> other way around so yeah, yeah so like when people were saying you know longshore drift and all this for like seas and i love all that and that's from the wind and the waves uh, and i can picture it all and i can see it all moving and i can understand it so i find that very very easy so um i just stuck to what i was good at <laughs> what i found vaguely interesting which was geography um and it was at the time when there was climate change wasn't really going on or nobody was really mentioning it or nobody's really mentioning weather um there was a few big storms but but you know if you asked anybody back then you know would would geography lead you anywhere everybody would have said no so i'm happy to prove them wrong but um yeah so i um i followed geography and that led me then into kind of looking at the climate and then from the climate i then randomly joined a little spent a little bit of time in the army and then had the opportunity to do a master's course at Birmingham University and kind of as fate was happening I was looking at between two courses one was um archaeology so I almost became an archaeologist (laughs) uh and meteorology and there were two courses that day kind of uh, recruiting uh and I want to have a look at the meteorology because I find that really interesting as well uh, and I went uh, went along and, and Dr. Kai went, yeah, yeah, I kind of like your story, who's, who's the main kind of professor at Birmingham University, another gifted individual. And he said, oh, just go and sit in that lecture next door. Just just go and see what's happening. And I kind of went in they're like, they're in, uh, and it was the first lecture of the course. He didn't tell me. And he went, oh, there, you, you pretty much have to go in now because you've done your first lecture. So, <laughs> And that's how I got in, enrolled into meteorology at Birmingham University. Oh, I love that story. It's so... Um lucky organic yeah. no it's like <laughs> yeah. it's just just sort of following your heart you're like yeah this feels right i'm just gonna gonna take this next i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this I, I, that's that's a lovely story it's really lovely yeah really sadly lovely. i'm no longer the archaeologist and you, you do wonder have i uh, missed the opportunity there well but... i believe indiana jones is looking <laughs> for a replacement so you yeah, can I go know. back and do some trading <laughs> That's that's my uh, next goal. Next goal. <laughs> yes, next that's, job. Lots <laughs> yeah. of time in lockdown to train up on that one. <laughs> Got the whip. It's fine. Hats yeah. there. <laughs> so what um, we really want to know about is bass. Yep. Good old British Antarctic Survey. Um, probably one of the greatest companies to work for. I, I won't lie there. They are fantastic. And just the way they operate and the way they work just encourages free thinking Uh, And it's brilliant. I mean, the research they do there is excellent. And I was just very, very fortunate. Um, Birmingham University led to it again. Uh, Part of the Birmingham University course is you go away and do some work experience. And I, from Dr. Jenny Pike, 
and Dr. Kai, they went, oh, do you know what? Antarctica uh, and British Antarctic Survey, we got some contacts there. They might be the right people to go and speak to and do a week there. And I did a week, yeah, with British Antarctic Survey in, in lovely Cambridge. And uh, I got to meet another, like, absolutely giant of the profession which is steve colwell who's the like he he's he's the daddy of meteorology at british antarctic survey he's been there a long time he's done a few winters he's he knows everything there is to know about antarctic meteorology and i got to kind of look at some sensors I'd, i had some previous experience with sensors as I, I had a background in kind of um electronics so i got to put together a weather station and that, that was great fun. And he introduced me to all that. So I got to do all the electronics there. And then basically I, I left and I had a really good feeling. And I thought, you know what, that, that would be something I'd really like to apply to. Uh, and I applied to it. I, I didn't get it initially because there were two exceptional candidates as well. Um, but they needed a third one because it was a special year when um, Halley 6 was the third, that kind of blue and red base, which everybody's seen of late. Uh, it was it's, it was being commissioned that year, and and they they felt that that this was a special year, and because of all the movement and stuff that they would need two meteorologists that year, and so very very fortunately, uh, Steve called me up and went, I know you were initially not successful, but there might be a spare place. Do you, do you want to come on board? Uh, and I said yes. I didn't realise at the time it was wasn't until later until I really realised how long I was actually going for. So how long did you go for? Uh, so. I went for a year, just over a year. Um, you say but, just. I mean, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah, I, I misread the application. I thought it was six months, actually. But oh, no. it obviously doesn't make sense. So I had like a girlfriend at the time. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's only six months. It'll be fine. But then when uh, it all fell apart very quickly, once we uh, realized that it was a much longer stint of like a that, year and a bit. I think a year in a place like Antarctica is a very different year elsewhere. I mean, you're with that team 24 7 they're your family they're your day-to-day you get to know those people really well so a year spent in that kind of isolation with expertise people who are expert in what they are doing is a very different year to even the year that we've just had yeah so imagine you're locked down but just for a whole year and you can't you really can't get out so there's some there's some good bits there's a start of the season when everybody's there so you you to get there, you, you do two or three months of training at Cambridge, uh, and that's that. That's a whole wide range of things. So that's everything from how to walk on the ice safely, how to work with your partners in case you fall down a crevasse. Uh, you know, the year I turned up in the it had, Bass had been there for fifty six years, and in that time they had had fifty six deaths. So there was a slight worry at the time. Uh, you know how how safe is this but actually the last one had been a number of years before and they all seemed to be in blocks like three people on an ice sheet breaking off and off they went and so you lost a few people every time there's obviously the odd accident out there but overall actually it's it's they try and keep it fairly very safe yeah so there was there was all that so they really train you well before you go out there in in all those kind of things and your job so taking the weather readings creating a synop code which is a long line of text effectively uh, which you send out to the met office every three hours um how to release a balloon which you have to release every day yeah so you learn out basically how to all do all of that um mobile elevating work platform so i had to learn how to create <laughs> like a crane how to operate a crane how to climb how to climb like uh, pylons and stuff to put uh, to install sensors on top of pylons and all of that was learned 
Then you get flying down to South, uh, South Africa, in my case, and then you jump on a boat uh, or a ship, which was the Shackleton, uh, and that took uh, about three or four weeks to get down to the ice. So it was all that before we got to Antarctica. Um, we hit two. This is beautiful as well. So being the Met person on those ships, you're asked to go up to the bridge and do the weather reports for them. Uh, and we left Cape Town to hit two severe storms one after another um and i was violently ill for about a week even with patches as was pretty much everybody else and when i when i spoke to one of the crew and said is it is this like standard for down here they went oh it's been once worse in the north sea where you could stand on your cabin uh (gasps) on the side when you were sleeping so you'd go from a like lying down to standing on your walls so it was that kind of I'm actually feeling anxious listening to this yeah so we went through probably two weeks of it bobbing and it bobbed like a little cork uh screw so it was you know the the wave category is high which is basically 10 (laughs) 10 meter 8 to 10 meter waves rolling in crashing over the side and it was it was just manic the question is was the captain panicked no, but they all, all the sailors just look like, oh, it's fine. But yeah. even they weren't eating. They were like, I'll just try and eat in little bits. And so that yeah. that's when you start thinking, well, it's a bit rough. But you see all the water like washing around the window. So you look out the little port holes and there's water just washing around. Um, and then you get to the ice and basically then you start plowing through the ice. So for the next week, you just hear the <laughs> ship reversing and hitting the ice to kind of smash it apart. Uh, and it will do that for about a week until it gets to like some rivers and then it gets close to the coast of some open bits where it can dock with the coast. Uh, so, I slept through all of that, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I have um, a couple of questions for you. So I, I, I spent some time observing, but it was on an airfield. So a very different experience and obviously maintaining sensors. But for somebody who doesn't un- maybe perhaps completely understand why that's so important, explain why why is that so important and also why in particular down there are those instruments those daily readings so so there's a range of reasons why they're all important so you know tap you know explain explain the i mean that's not just taking readings there's a really really important job there yeah so there's there's the readings on the ship which is crucial and then the readings in antarctica for the ship it's crucial because basically your your firstly there's there's no other data nearby so there's there's very few buoys there's very few anything there's no landmass so each bit of data is is rare or it's you know it's it's unique and it kind of is used to help guide models uh, and uh, the start predictions for all of our models uh, these ships data will feed into some of those um and so yeah it the fact that it's on its own is is i i guess important data because there's nothing else there and then also it can be used to help other vessels when they're like working whether they should steer clear of storm systems how cold it is how far the the ice extent is how high those waves are and between the two swells and things like that and you basically can work out where the storms are moving to or have come from and and basically you can even in some cases these days redirect traffic on trade for better routes so less burning of fuel uh, and these ships burn a ton of fuel. So pretty much one third of all British Antarctic operation money is just spent on moving these ships. That's really, really, really expensive. So yeah, so better ship moving is, is better. So the sensors on the ship are critical. And then for for Antarctica, they're particularly critical because they're even, you know, uh, 
Halley 6, the nearest base is probably, if, if, if Halley 6 would say London, the nearest base is probably somewhere in Poland, the next base along. So Antarctica mm. is huge. It's a really, mm. really, really big continent, which you don't often think about. And so if you're thinking there's these little weather stations uh, just here and there, uh, you know, in Britain, we've got thousands of weather stations covering all the bits of Britain. And that all feeds into our models and helps drive the models and predict the future well effectively on in antarctica it's all guesswork and you need these and so there's a lot more computing power has to go in there so you need these kind of points of data to actually be really important reference points firstly so in terms of weather they're absolutely critical for for helping our models because they they kind of the weather data so the wind and the temperature it, it, yeah that there's that's the only data you can get from a huge area so so and you you spoke as well so they're just sensors that are maybe mm-hmm. um yeah two meters to 10 meters up depending on what the sensor is yeah but actually that one day weather balloon yes is like a piece of gold dust yes so tell us a bit more about that that's that's got to be the favorite part of the job so uh yeah you get down on the ice it's 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 a uh, uh you know you say it's cold but it's it's about minus five to minus 10 out there. So it's, um, you'll feel it the first time you get there, but by the end of winter, you've probably got shorts and t-shirt on if it's a minus five to minus 10, uh, because your standard weather out there is around minus 35 and you kind of get a little <laughs> bit of use of that, even though the bases run a cool 19 degrees, but you probably spend about an hour each side every day outside and you just get kind of used to maybe a bit less, but you kind of get used to those temperatures and mm. when you go up 20 degrees it feels warm <laughs> so if you yeah. were minus 35 one week and it's minus 10 the next it does feel significantly warmer and in the sunshine you're like oh, i can i can manage with some shorts and t-shirts but um yeah the balloon is released every day at 11 o'clock halley time uh to coincide with all the other balloons that are released around the world to for the met office uh, and one's released every day and it sends a little sond up into the air uh, and the sond records like temperature um pressure uh, and all of that is basically fed back uh, and that basically gives you a profile of the upper air so it goes really really high up to the edge of our atmosphere and the balloon swells to the size of a double decker bus it starts as just a very small balloon um and it keeps swelling and yeah um but that was probably the highlight of every day so you had to do it every day uh, and you know we've released them in hurricane speed winds and seen them go out sideways um and i think we had a pretty good ratio i think we only didn't get six out for the entire year i was just going to ask you did you have many crashes that's pretty good going what's the average wind speed down there at the surface um it varies usually it would be between i think you can usually get up to about 15 knots um but we did get up to 55 60 knots on some of the stormy days i think 65 was was making everything shake um we did get a balloon out on one of those but not the but 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 it happened like over two days on the second day i think we wasted like two balloons and two sons and we just had to call it a day because it's about i think it's about 65 or 95 pound a pop and there's only a limited supply so you don't want to be just smashing them across the side uh, of, of antarctica which is basically what happens so instead of usually they're just pop up into the air <laughs> slowly ascend but in those winds you just see it go out horizontally for a long while yeah and hope it, it doesn't go back <laughs> and you hope just it doesn't crash in an eddy 
<laughs> yeah, and you go back and you, you're watching like the screen and you're waiting to see that data start feeding back into the computers. Uh, and there's a little pause while you hope that happens. Uh, and then sometimes it doesn't, and you have to go and send it out again. So, you know, the, that journey down there, the everything that you did to get yourself there, why why is that so why is that so important what were you doing there you know what was the the main role there yeah so there's so the, the first one is is keeping that weather station active and alive that we spend that so those sensors are in so making sure that stays and the other one is for the ozone hole um so i was I don't know yeah it's, it's, it's an interesting one to me i was extremely lucky because coming down on the ship with me and also spending uh the first month or two months helping set up the weather station down there was john shanklin um and he he found the ozone hole so he's the guy who went i think there's i'm going to question this data and have a look at it and he was the one that used the dobson spectrometer well I'll try and get that right um to basically work out that there was uh, a gap in the ozone hole above so ever since Halley has been a station to basically keep recording that hole because it was the first one to find it and we've uh, even when I was there we observed it kind of stationary or, or retreating a little bit uh, but it's still there um, but not growing uh, as much as it was back then and I mean it, it grew for a long time um, so how did he discover this hole was it through temperature or um... no he used a spectrometer so he looked through the sun and basically worked out now you're going to get me now but the but as the sun comes through it takes slightly different paths and you can filter out the rays using a spectrometer and at a certain level you can work out how much rays are being taken up by the ozone and if there is no ozone those rays are just finding that going all the way down to the spectrometer so you're hoping mm. it would that those those rays wouldn't be there and therefore you have an ozone how do you survive a winter in so first of all tell us how much daylight you see um so at the start you get unlimited daylight mm -hmm. uh, which is lovely uh, and then you go into a surreal kind of um twilight zone where you get pretty much permanent uh sunsets and sunrises which is quite nice oh, for a amazing. month either side and then how do you get three months of kind of no sun but probably to uh, complete darkness as in if you walked out at 12 o'clock it'd be dark there's probably about three weeks of that as in no light at all um Gosh, so that you, must be hard um it's okay i'd say the probably the worst bit is coming out of that um so within the space of a few weeks you've gone from and, and there's things to keep your mind present so uh so all the winters there's 14 a crew of 14 there for the for the probably about nine nine to ten months so as you said before, you get to know each other, but they, they you, like, there's lots of things that you'll try and do together. And one of them is like to create a midwinter present. So each person in the base will create a secret Santa present for somebody else on the base. Uh, oh. And a lot of effort will go into those presents, like a huge amount of effort will go into those presents. And that kind of keeps your mind busy. Uh, and then there's midwinter feast and all this. And so, yeah, you get to do, um, so all of that pretty much keeps you up and kind of it's still exciting it's still new up and up until midwinter um which is the 21st of june obviously um down there and on that day you'll get to do kind of a, a naked run around the base that's part of the 
thing so everybody strips down and just goes for a run and the other time you do it is when it goes below minus 50 and then you do another little run around the base but the second one's much much worse although it was a it was only like a minus 25 i think when we did the naked run around the base the first one around tally six probably what we didn't realize is the new base is much much longer than the old base so we were out for a long time um and i managed to while running around nice picking up the speed because I didn't want to be out there and I was the first one to run into a cable which was coming down from the base to the ground oh, no. <laughs> landed in my on my back in the snow <laughs> so that added oh, to the uh, do you know what cold. amazes me you've got all of this technology doing the most advanced science and as humans we still want to run around naked yeah why just, not I just mean, because just there's nothing the else time. to do there's you know two months of lockdown and you and you're thinking what, what can I do well six months in yeah, yeah. <laughs> goes. 14 people and there's no internet so that's something to bear in mind there you've you can't go on facebook the there's there's x amount of bandwidth and the science takes two-thirds of it so if, if i was to go on a call at halley six nobody else can use the internet so that's wow. it that's that's it so if one person rings home you can't download you can't see pictures you can't send a facebook you can't do anything that's gone so yeah, it was, yeah, you don't get much contact with the outside world. Um, yeah, so that, that there's no, <laughs> so you're really isolated for around six, seven months. Yeah, the, the supplies that you take down there, does it all go with you initially or do you yes. get additional supplies? No, that's it. Time? Once you're locked that's down, you're, you're locked down. So basically everything comes in with that ship and if you're desperate for anything or if anything's really been missed, then the um, then the plane will kind of drop it off. But however, once you get into that dark period, the planes can't enter anymore. Yeah. So, and we... Some people say how, you know, how dangerous is it? Well, come midwinter, come those three months of darkness, there can no, be no planes landing in at Halley because there is the airport or the airfield is a ice mm. runway, which yeah. we have to smooth with a tractor. We can't do that through the winter because it's below minus 40, so you can't get the engine started, so yeah. the fuel in the pipes is frozen. And therefore, you can't do anything with the runway. So there's no runway. There's no there's, there's no, no way to get anybody in and out. So you've got a doctor, but other than that, if anything dangerous or bad happens, you're in a really, really dodgy situation very, very quickly because there's no way out yeah i was going to ask you as well what's the lowest temperature that you experienced there i believe it was minus 56.5 if i'm remember correctly yeah so it was it was all right and you can check it was all right there was there was just objects that you took out and it acted really strange like if you took a black bin liner out and you waved it outside you could just poke holes through it so it became like a solid object which you could just poke your finger through the bin bag like instant freeze wow. yeah yeah so that was wow. that was hilarious um which is That's weird and, and the classic everybody does it it, it does work because i've done it i boiled a kettle thrown it up in the air and it just it's, turns into snow yeah. powder <laughs> there's loads of um, those videos at the moment on social media because of the cold weather in the states yeah, so, yeah. It, it definitely works yeah, yeah so we did all that um i i did a lot of kite skiing to keep my mind active which was paramount so i got really good at kite skiing um and i just remember my boots freezing so like my ski boots like the plastic snapped because it was that cold wow. so the the plastic which you usually ski around like minus 25 wow starts changing uh consistency around minus 50 it, it's um it's pretty amazing actually when you, we realize that how specialized those scientific instruments are and even basic stuff like a camera 
will not work down there. Like people have to bring very special things down and companies invest mm. money to make sure that things work down yeah. there. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. And they don't always work. So that, yeah. that was part of the role that I did. So we, we had the, um, one of my favorites and the, seemingly the picture which I always gets shown to me whenever any I do anything in Antarctica is cleaning off the rime which is built uh, on, the, on the prop. So the prop takes the wind and tells you what speed it is for those who don't know. Um, but usually we'd have a very, very slow wind occasionally come in from the east and it was off the bays and it would create maybe one or two inches of rime on everything. <laughs> and then the propeller would just be rhymed and so it'd be stuck and then someone had to climb the 10 meters which would often be me with armed with a broom (laughs) to to hit it off but everything's in rhyme so as you're putting your hands down all the rhymes just spraying into your face so you just covered in snow and like you're trying you can't leave any gaps because it's like minus 25 minus 35 so it's between those so you don't want to lead anything um yeah and i've even changed cable over and rewired stuff and uh, you know i i cut my thumb and i was like oh no i've, I've cut my thumb and i looked down there's obviously no blood because it all froze yeah <laughs> instantly so, so there was no, no cuts way. or anything and yeah. when i took off the glove it was fine it was it was already like self-healed like frozen shot so, so did wow. you ever nearly lose um any of your digits that was going to be my question next as well <laughs> no i fortunately was very the closest i got was the naked run round at minus 55 i think or something like that yeah and um as you as you ran round, I, I clenched my fists really tight as i was running ground uh, and when i came back in i don't know if you've ever seen a pair of leather gloves but they've got like seams on the outside mm. which looks mm-hmm. stitched all my hands had frozen like that so when i opened up my hands uh, down down my fingers were like seams of frozen skin so that oh was uh, like all the way down on all my fingers so that was funny uh and um almost froze my big toe twice <gasps> but uh, it thawed out both times and i never got any frostbite so i seem to be just Very fairly lucky, lucky. yeah <laughs> how did you cope when you come back john like when you came back to the uk how did you cope i was okay um i came i was very lucky because my nan at the time was, was very ill uh, and they let me come fractionally early. So it was a bit sad because everybody had plans to basically go to Cape Town and then travel Africa. And I effectively had to come back to the UK about a month early. So that was a big loss. Um, but I did get to see my grandmother before she passed away, which was amazing. Um, so for me, of course, it was worth it. But yeah, that but that was only able to happen because they had the transport out at that time uh, and it was all summer and there was lots of uh, to and throwing of equipment. So I got to hitch a ride on some of that and got back fairly quickly. Um, but I, I found it OK. I, I, as I said, I think the hardest time, mentally the hardest time for me, um, I did the gym every day, did kite skiing most days to keep my mind active. But probably going from that dark period, the three months of darkness back into the light. So within a month, you go from it being dark all the time to it being yeah. to go into the toilet at three o'clock in the morning and the sun's blazing in your mm. face outside yeah and that really hurts. it's disorientating yeah. yeah exactly yeah. i'd say that's probably when the most people struggle is that kind of spring season i i guess back out but um when i got home i was, I, was, I i had no issues a lot of people worry about it because there are actually a lot of winters who come back and get into injuries um and sadly one of my base guys did did come back and 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 die in a road accident but 
I think that was a bit later, but they but they're saying like when when you come back, it's there's there's an Antarctic stair, stair they call it, but effectively out there you can't work out distances uh, just because it's just white and flat. So it yeah. could be five meters away, or it could be a long way away. And, uh, and we, we were told that when we come back, just to be a bit careful on roads and stuff because you can't judge it as well as you could before. So you think a car's miles away, but, but actually it's just there. Yeah, uh, and it's just because you lose that ability to to judge how far things are away. Um- and when you came back, did you work for Bass and do any more work with him? No, I immediately pretty much uh, left Bass uh, okay. after my handover. And then I, I jumped straight off to the British exploring guys. Uh, oh, no, oh, yeah. I, I love I that. Know, and, yeah. I, and I got to do an expedition out to the Himalayas as, as, a, as a scientist and got to install a weather station at, you know, on, on top of the Himalayas, which was another great dream. So going from an Antarctic uh setting i I got to you know go walk up to six thousand meters uh put a weather station at five thousand four hundred i've been at four thousand meters oh my goodness that was suffocating oh i I didn't mind it i think it's one of those things again where you just get lucky with altitude or not yeah i I think so apparently just seem to be okay with altitude as well but uh yeah it was it was was, that's probably one of the most heroic when I think back to it now, I, I look at, I had young explorers, the 17, 18 year olds with me mm. who'd come on this trip and knew they were going to install this weather, weather station. Um, and they just stuck in there and we carried it on a stretcher from about 4,000 meters, maybe a bit lower to 5,440 meters or something like that. I think it was for a little time as well, it, it didn't work. I just couldn't get the logger to work and it became the highest non-working weather station in the world. Claim <laughs> <And then, laughs> to fame. Yeah. <laughs> and, then I, um, we, and then we ran out of battery on the laptop and there was no way to charge it. The solar panels couldn't give enough. And I, I, uh, and I, I think in the end, I just cut the wires for a plug, took it and stuck it on the car battery as a, let's hope it works. Like, uh, you shouldn't do that because that's, a lot of power going into that laptop to charge it so it might just blow the laptop but it worked surprisingly amazing uh, yeah and i managed to go back up and i just changed the name of the logger and it started working yeah. so yeah then i think it was about the fourth highest weather station for a little while and, and then i don't know what happened to it in the end it, i'm about to say is it is, is it still there is it still working a year's worth of data out uh, it was okay. right next to a glacier which was really good and then the second year it turned out that someone had gone up there and robbed all the electronics out of it so it was just an empty weather box oh, <laughs> somebody no. climbed six thousand meters yeah. to rob the electrics. yeah <laughs> robbed all the electrics dedication that is yeah i mean you can't fight he said well he's got that far he might as well i sort of feel like you've done your career in reverse like you've done these amazing things first how can anything live up to live up to that well i had some quite fun times at meteor group uh Gemma being <laughs> sat next to me on some very intense night shifts um and that that's that brings a whole other level of intense and that keeps you going right um yeah there were some great nights there weather forecasting which i really enjoyed um and learned a lot there and and yeah so it's just trying to keep keep with it um i mean i do have to do the odd journey now and again so last year i did the mongol rally which was driving your old you know one liter car from london to mongolia so Amazing. That, was, that was a that was a fun as well so it looked a lot of fun it did look a lot of fun i recommend it to anybody what's what's 
what's funny is everybody's quite friendly along the way. You know, you hear all these stories about, oh, you know, the Russians or whatever. <laughs> They're all lovely <laughs> the, whole, the whole way. <laughs> nobody's, there was, there was no bad will. Everybody helped us out the whole way. Um, yeah, and it was, it was fantastic. But that, that was great because managed to break down in the Gobi Desert. So that, that took a little bit of a day of fixing the car at, yeah. at like plus 40 degrees. So did all your electrical skills come into play there? So you've, you've, you understand the electrics that sub, incredible sub-zero temperatures at high altitude under different air pressure beating Sunday. Did, no. it, did it all help? Did it no. Help? luck luck played a huge part on that one because the uh i mean it was a bolt the bolt which attach attaches your wheel or your 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 suspension to the chassis sheared in half and i by chance threw the kitchen sink bolt in and it literally is the kitchen sink bolt it's the one that stops the washing machine vibrating and i thought that looks a nice long bolt you never know when you need a nice long bolt and i threw it in the bag (laughs) And um, that was the only one long enough to tie our car back together. I love that you even thought of that. Like you looked at that bolt and thought, hmm, that looks like something. Just, just could be huge. could be useful. Um, and then we, I've still got that bolt somewhere as a lucky bolt because we were stuck in really in the middle of, like in the middle of Mongolia, there is, there's nothing, there's, there's yeah. really nothing anywhere nearby. There's, there's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like Antarctica and that's like, there's, like you feel like you're in a real and we were in real trouble as well when we when we broke down and it was just in sand um but we managed to use that bolt and we limped the car for 15 miles into somewhere and then had a fun night trying to explain in mongolia uh, where they don't often read or write the language so which makes it very difficult if you're trying to use google translate Mm. so with interpretive dance or mime (laughs) we we got them to replace the bolt, but that in itself is a great story for for probably another time, less weather related. But it was um, that that was that was a, that was that was an amazing trip as well. On that trip as well, did you experience any other extreme weather? Yeah, probably plus fifty degrees in a car where it has no air conditioning, so you just I mean, wound down the things. Not nice <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> no, just you have to spray a bit of water on you to try and get the evaporation going to cool you down. But otherwise, yeah, it was it was painfully hot at times. Getting to know to... your companions real well again in a different yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Two extremes: minus fifty in Antarctica, plus fifty, 50. Yeah. in the car. So. Yeah. Did did you ever at any point, you know, were you ever afraid? Genuinely, were you, was there ever a time where you thought, "Oh gosh," you know? No, not for yes, actually, probably um, not afraid. Afraid, I was slightly concerned at a Russian border, where well, we're always told the Russians. <laughs> I can see you looking cautiously about what I'm going to say next, but they're always. Um, they there's a big thing with russian drugs so we knew this beforehand and uh, we had a full medical pack so like your standard medical uh kit so it, ha- it had pretty much everything but they won't they can't they will not allow codeine into russia so just so you can oh. see so that that's absolutely illegal you're in a little bit of trouble it can be taken off you. you can be held up a little while and you pay some fines some people went to court on the year that i was there because they had it turned out they had some other bits of equipment which they shouldn't have had as well which probably didn't help (laughs) um but for me yeah the panic stage was at two o'clock in the morning when we arrived 
up the Russian border and I went through my medical pack and they said, ah, you have some, and we'd already been through the Russian border once before, you have some rectal diazepam um, and you're not allowed that. And so therefore I was taken to a little cell for about five hours while I went through and they said, this is really not very good. Um, we had a nice armed guard for a little while. And then after lots of kind of threatening stuff, a, a lady came in, smiled at me and went, please sign here and said that we did nothing untoward. Get back in your car and carry on. <laughs> so I've, I have so many questions about that. What yep. were you doing with rectal diazepam? That's to stop any seizures that you might have. And it's part of the medical pack. So ah. it's just, it was not mine. It was a doctor gave us this yeah, medical yeah. pack for, the, mm. for, for anything. And it was just, we'd, we'd taken out anything we thought he'd gone through it with all the guidelines. And he was like, this will be okay just in case there's any seizures and mm. like, well, well probably don't need it but okay we'll follow the doctor's advice and they because uh, they bought it in Russia as well you can buy it over the counter there <laughs> you're not allowed to drive in with it so um so that was but other than that it was absolutely fine yeah um yeah no n never worried there was probably moments where I not worried but exhaustion kind of hit in mm. and you felt you know the middle of Gobi when the fuel lines cut you've got a, the cars the chassis broken um and you're thinking we're stuck in the middle of the Gobi desert in Mongolia in a yurt and um you know tears almost come to the eye there and you just think oh after four weeks or five weeks of driving we may fail here in Mongolia you know four mm. days from the finish line and that that was a tough that was a really tough day for me but we thankfully <laughs> the guys I we're just just walked into a year and I went oh there's there's loads of bolts in this year and that was it and it was just a, a year full of bolts probably off all the other cars that had failed in the Gobi Desert and one of them was thankfully the right length to fit our car and without that bolt we wouldn't have finished it was all that's insane that's just be. insane it's, yeah, it's insane. yeah you should so... see the videos it becomes even more weird <laughs> and wonderful that <laughs> so what what do you what do you what's your job title now so uh, I'm a national account manager uh, and I work for a company called Kisters. And what, um, what do and they, they do? So they're software related, really. So they started doing software. I mean, I actually really, really like this company. So they're still a family company, which is great. Uh, and they've let me have a little bit of freedom. Um, so I've managed to get a lot out of them. But yeah, they, they started software. Nobody really knows who they are, but they basically they're kind of the engines for say the environment agency so all the kind of software in the background i mean the environment agency people anybody listening to this will, will know of something called whiskey and <laughs> it's basically what they use to derive all their stats and figures and numbers and kistas pretty much makes that for all the kind of environment agencies globally um so <laughs> but they don't say anything it's just there in the background yeah. um yeah and we've been i've been working with them to kind of look at their cloud solutions so they they make some flooding tools as well um and yeah i kind of help their team and and point them into kind of new solutions and uh, new ways to look at tools especially with flooding and drought at the moment so in london as a whole my, my role is kind of working with the, the municipalities across the uk uh, and i try and help guide the tools to basically enable local authorities to make better decisions in terms of flooding and that's what I like doing at the moment is very, very relevant, and I still feel I'm kind of it really is. touched with climate change and yeah, and yeah. I mean, just at the time of recording this, we've gone, you know, we've jumped up about 
nearly 12 degrees actually in a few spots today so the ground has been frozen the soil has been frozen so it's not been raining in some places but the amount of water that's running around and run off is there oh, there's a lot of it there's, you know you think that mm-hmm. you've driven t- through a shower but actually it's just surface water runoff yeah. certainly localized flooding is mean really means something that word really really means yeah. something. Yeah, I think it's on that really local scale. It's, it's kind of the Environment Agency do a really good job on the rivers and stuff. Uh, and now, especially in kind of more built up areas, all of that kind of flooding is getting worse or more prevalent because of the urbanization, because of the concrete, it filters, it channels it. It makes, you know, the roads can act in some of these cases, like I've seen, like rivers. Uh, and the two or three of these roads on steep sides put, literally guide all the water to one set of houses which may be lower than the river but it doesn't matter they've just dumped all the water into you know a, a set of houses and they all get flooded um as it cascades down into the river and so it's working yeah you're working to try and solve some of those issues now with kind of they say smart cities which is where we are going mm-hmm. with a lot of this technology now um but kind of working on some of the smart controllable assets that we put in place such as tanks and stuff which can hold up that water and then slowly release it and trying mm. to make those smarter and, and more care uh, and, and more more useful so mm. again I've, I've worked by lucky i've worked with some real giants in the area at the moment uh like guys in charge of i'll say george warren because he's an absolute legend but he's the man for suds right now for, for london uh, and he's it's his vision really to kind of put london to start reusing their water uh, and i'm just very lucky to know him and able to point our company in in kind of the, the direction he he says you know we should be looking at this and i go away and i go we should be looking at this guys and so it's by knowing these kind of people and, and really their vision uh, that we can yeah kind of get a grip of how to change things in the future so I, i'm loving it I, i'm really like the forefront of where i am at the moment so it's it's just it's, i find it fascinating how kind of yeah urbanization and the climate change is really beginning to play out play a role now and i think it's going to become more prevalent so yeah trying to find solutions to to prevent this and to better use water is is, is a good place to be right now definitely I have a question for you, actually, just about going back to and the uh, to Antarctica. Um, what what was the take home message from that year? What did um, the, what did you collect? What did the data say? Oh, uh, yeah, it, it is warming. It's massively warming. So yeah, we saw. I think we saw the warmest ever temperature ever to date in Antarctica that year. So in the summertime, it went to one or two degrees, which had not been seen before that far south. Mm. um and that was in antarctica um that, that was at halley so it was one of the bays which is actually quite a long way in so you might see those kind of temperatures in rothera uh which is slightly further yeah. mm. uh, towards the equator <laughs> so slightly further north um but halley's quite far in uh and they were seeing warm temperatures and we were seeing more slush more so we were seeing shower clouds which really you get wow. yeah so it's warm enough to create showers wow. there which was beginning to he was beginning to see that more often when we were when we turned up we were told we wouldn't see those type of clouds and yet we were seeing shower clouds on the uh you know on the horizon the, the warm waters so things were things mm. were changing um yeah and we even took the we even managed to get or i managed to get out to something like uh 85 degrees south uh to one of the really remote 
uh, weather stations where it's you know three day plane ride to get there um staying overnight in the plane and stuff and we got there and we got the measurements back from that and it was, it was slowly showing that i think the inner ones were still quite stable but the ones near halley are really showing change now so it's, it's getting much warmer mm. um and we can see that now with halley six with all the cracks forming mm-hmm. around it and stuff like bigger uh, they usually do have cracks but this is more significant than they've they've, they've ever seen so mm-hmm. yeah it's it is warming uh it's interesting because our papers play it as like you know they'll say oh it's 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 warmer in antarctica right now that's what they might say today or something like that but of course it's their summertime so um we always miss those little love it love a south american rat temperature reference yeah Yeah. yeah, that was it and i was like it's it's warm because it it is mid like midsummer right now yeah yeah but um yeah they, they got to one degree that year and i think it's got warmer since and that was the warmest year they'd ever seen on the 56 years of record when i was there that's incredible yeah. that's that's just yeah wow so really take, need to take a minute to kind of digest that don't you especially i think when you work in the weather and you when you hear that say like, wow you know yeah, if there's one thing that we're able to do really well is you know the that pure the most fundamental of science is observation and that's how we learn is from observing when we create, we see a pattern and then we understand the pattern and then we think we know what's what's happening. So when one of the most fundamentals of observational science, such as temperature, starts to change, which is the one thing that we have the most records of, it's, yeah, it's pretty, yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah, it's got a, yeah, as I said, I think it was 56 years of continuous record yeah. um, from that sensor. So it was, it was a really good piece of equipment and so it's been fairly stable there I mean it wasn't the same sensor but they'd kept all of them highly calibrated through the mm. years so it, it had done a number of years that one as well so yeah it was it was good to see the continuous record but yeah it's, it's heating up so what what's for the future for you I, I don't know um <laughs> I, don't, I don't know um sustainability by the same sustainability I I'll probably keep in this role for a while anyway while I while I believe i can still do some good here um and yeah i mean keep pushing some new mm. solutions forward which might help in the future um and yeah i i, I don't know i you know five years time hopefully i'll have met those goals our cities will be more resilient and i'll have to find the next challenge somewhere else would you would you go back down to the antarctic that's always on my mind i don't think you can ever mm. forget the antarctic um does it have a little lore, a call, you know, always. after being there? Is it? Is it a, always. Yeah. I mean, Shackleton had it best. You know, you, once you've seen it, you, you always want to go back. And sometimes you have those dreams and you, you wake up longing to go back to Antarctica. <laughs> but, mm. but, you know, I, I'm able to picture it quite vis- vividly. So I still remember mm. the highs and all the lows. So mm. and I try and keep that in perspective when I get those yeah. calls to yeah. go back. But um <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I probably would go back, um, but but not yet. <laughs> it's one of those places that I would absolutely love to go to. Oh, really stuff. I, every year I applied for that for years and years and years. And actually I did. Uh, so I did a tour down in the Falklands once. So that was as close as far south as I got, which is I think minus 40 maybe degrees. Um, so nowhere near as far south. But I know anyone who did get there had had probably done a stint you know, in the Falklands 
And then if they're lucky, they got to go to Rothera, depending on the season and what, you know, a whole bunch of variables. They'll get to go down as a forecaster. But yeah, I am. Um, it's a little dream of mine that maybe I'll get to do that one day. Uh, I, I met the uh, the meteorologist from the Met Office. Uh, who obviously they have it one for for the summertime, yeah. and they went, they were they were good. Yeah. <laughs> was, I just they thought, are. wow, they they churn out some unbelievable meteorologists there. Um, and I, was, I just remember thinking that that's what that's probably what persuaded me to have a try at Meteor Group when I when I got back actually. Um, but that, that, that I was impressed that they could you know work out within a couple of hours when fog and mist would be arriving mm-hmm. in which which areas as well uh for the plane flights and stuff uh, i was yeah it was impressive yeah yeah i want to go there i really want to go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, have to do, we'll have to do a podcast from there ash i know oh, could you imagine yeah. <laughs> i want to do just kite surf down there that sounds fantastic kite surfing is absolutely amazing that's yeah. kite skiing is amazing as well. <laughs> kite skiing, sorry, not kite, yeah, surfing, yeah. kite skiing. Yes, of I course. I prefer kite skiing, obviously. But, I'm mixing uh, up my state of liquid. <laughs> I love kite skiing. That's, that's one of the best things I did out there. Um, I could spend hours. I mean, I, I even managed to get my own kite. I was, I was getting a bit confident and I got my kite stuck in the Met Tower one day and then the wind <laughs> just pulling the kite around like that and I was like slowly being dragged <laughs> towards the Met Tower um, and I had to bolt myself in and call on the radio and say, guys, can anybody come and rescue me? Whilst I fix this Met station here. Yes. <laughs> there was a talk about just cutting loose my cables to let the kite fly away and I was like, please, can someone try and recover it? <laughs> They're really expensive <laughs> and it's the only one. So like once it's gone, it's gone. And I was like, please please can someone and uh my friend sam at the time kindly uh went, went went all the way up and spent 10 minutes untangling my kite doing you know unwrapping it round by round but yeah that was uh that was a fun day acts of kindness pure acts of kindness yeah base base commander wasn't too <laughs> too happy but, uh... well he can't fire you so you know yeah, I mean, exactly. I was, it was midwinter, so I was, yeah. I was all right. Like, you can't get rid of me at that point. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Before you go, John, um, we like to do a quick fire round. So it's, it's, it's quick fire, but there's likely to be some follow-up questions from Ash. I can't help it. I just can't help so, it. I, just, I love I'm more details. Please, nothing more on the ozone and how it No, no, no. <laughs> Some of them are weather-related and That's some perfect. of them are really random questions as well. So it's a But mixture. very important life questions. Yeah. Right. Especially if you, you don't do night shifts anymore, but some of these questions are very critical for night shifts. Go for it. Okay. You'll, you'll, you'll recognise the ones when I ask you. Okay. Favourite season? Ooh, um, I mean, as a forecaster probably well if i said summer it'd be the easy option probably winter not necessarily Uh, the easy option because you've got thunderstorms as well yeah i mean yeah that's true i really enjoyed the thunderstorms and we've had some great ones watching from the top of the tower so that was great um autumn's is is my favorite season as a person Mm -hmm. uh meteorologist wise i guess winter heats up becomes interesting (laughs) with with the roads and stuff you know work starts it gets intense our version of a good time is very different in winter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
it's those winter months when you really get to know your colleagues i think on night shifts and long day shifts that's where you really you really form your bonds with your colleagues during those tricky winter shifts i think yes yeah uh favorite cloud oh straight off it went to uh cumulo i was gonna say cumulo cumulus but i don't i want to say strato cumulus type five is is actually yes yeah that's my favorite cloud why Uh, because it's there pretty much 50 percent of the time in antarctica it's like the only cloud what is it today Stratocumulus. <laughs> high pressure pretty much permanently so it's pretty i much can't remember what the difference is between sc4 and sc5 i used to know i know strata uh, sc5 is stratocumulus spreading out into a layer and sc4 five is a continue is a, continue. a fixed layer yeah yeah so and it's what's there four? not quite there yet is it or is it yeah i can't remember i know there's a lot of sc5 here as well like is that oh gosh, i used to really... know that off by heart yeah i know i know that i know all the codes as well by heart yeah. i can't remember mm. i remember all like the code 67 is diamond dust and things yeah like that. yes yeah yeah so i used to know all the little numbers mm. now i can't remember half of them there you are <laughs> we should have picked some random numbers just for you yeah to i used to remember them all but they are Still um, the rains and fogs fogs 40 but anyway carry on yeah yeah <laughs> yeah uh tea or coffee uh so unbelievably i used to be a tea and just randomly yeah. one day recently well about a year ago just, just started making me feel sick so now i drink coffee <laughs> I, really? Really? I think i just it... had a tea it was a black tea one day and i just drunk it without any milk and i went this is horrible and then forever on I felt sick for the rest of that day. And then forever on, it always triggers in my mind, this tastes horrible. I feel a bit sick. So now I, I can only drink coffee. Tea is um, made beautiful by a drop of milk. It, it definitely needs milk. There it definitely is, needs uh, milk. Yeah, that was perhaps was my error. I didn't have any milk that day. I just went straight on to that coffee. And that, is, that's, that proved costly. <laughs> Sorry, say that again, John? That proved costly. <laughs> so what, what, what proved costly? Not putting the drop of milk in that one day. Because now you don't drink tea. No, you don't, don't drink, drink tea. tea. The relationship's <laughs> yeah. over between you and it's tea. Gone. It's finished. You know, as a British person, is that not really sad? Um, no. They're not <laughs> some fundamental relationship you've broken with yourself. No, I wasn't. I wasn't a hot drink fan until I became a forecaster, <laughs> and I needed caffeine at all times of the day. Yeah. 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 It's something bonding as well on on a night shift where everyone's drinking tea and someone goes and makes the tea. I mean, we, when we were working together, it, I once won an award for being the best tea maker. That oh, it's quite the honour. Or that's a bit of a trick, though, Joe. No, I was a better tea maker than Nick I, having that. John, no, I am a much better tea maker than Nick. Oh, I'll have to be a tea off between you and Frevels. I just like to tell people listening to this, Gemma is genuinely offended by this. You should see her face. She's like, oh my God. I am. I mean, Nick did make a good cup of tea, but mine was good. I mean, you, you, I, mean I won an award, so come on. Can't argue with that. <laughs> so had he left? But anyway, sorry, carry on. No, he hadn't left. He was still there. Oh, okay, okay. That's okay. I, mean, I, I know Ash take it away from me, kettle. <laughs> You but we had that big, the big pot of tea, yeah, yes. that big teapot that we had. I think Ash actually went out and bought that. That's right, yeah, I did. Yeah, that was on our lunch break. We went and bought that one. Yeah, one, I remember that in the oh, it was a blue it was, tea shop. It, it um, was Wittards, I think. That's it. Yeah, it was that huge blue teapot. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Because we made so many cups of tea that we just had to buy a teapot. And then we left the milk out so many times it got warm and went off. <laughs> I mean, well, we just never learned, did we? <laughs> I remember nobody cleaning that teapot out for two days and it was just moldy inside. I had to clean it all out. That was that was not a pleasant day. <laughs> Let, that's a bit heroic. Well done. Yep. Someone has to do it. <laughs> um, back to the quick fire. Yes, we'll bring sorry. it back here. We'll bring it back here. Uh, jammy Dodgers or Jaffa Cakes? Uh, jammy Dodgers. Okay. Chocolate digestives or normal digestives? Chocolate digestives. Bourbons or custard creams? Custard creams. Oh, okay. okay. Um, one thing you wish everyone knew about the weather? One thing. Um... Oh, it doesn't have to be one word. It could be more than. Oh, be... no, I was like thinking, what? No, um, <laughs> I don't even know how to to answer that. Um, there's different types of snow. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and finally, fingers for toes or toes for fingers? Fingers for toes. Oh, fingers for toes. What we're talking yeah. about. I've I've almost pretty much got that already. It's a uh, thing. Okay. <laughs> Really? <laughs> my, I can sign my own name with my feet. Yeah. Wow. Why did you never show us that when we worked with you? On a night shift, that would have no, got nice. me through the night. I think so too. I wouldn't have had to look close. It would just be to see the skill. Yeah, just you yeah. could have sat like, right in the distance and we could have mm. just watched you do it on a night shift. Yeah. Because they're like claws, so they do that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's probably they're how not you liked didn't... by anybody so there you go that's probably how you didn't lose your big toes true yeah kept wiggling them mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you so much john it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today i've learned so much and all the information about antarctica has been absolutely fascinating thank you so much yeah, yeah i've learned so much as well and mm. i probably still have another million questions that i'd i'd, I'd love to ask I'm, my head is whizzing around with with stuff here you've had a really interesting career so far yeah i mean i, I think there's more to come but they uh definitely yeah. is there but definitely I, is but anyway, thanks thanks very much for having me anyway. It's been, no, thank you so um, much for joining us. I have thoroughly enjoyed this chat. It's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure. So thank you very much. I think that, you know, I think being an instrument, somebody who's like an expert, an instrument technician, mm-hmm. and also an observer, those skills are, I don't think you realize how valuable they are until you actually do them. And you realize that you're watching and the, 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 like that is the fundamentals right there you know all of these amazing weather models we have are made from physics but they're refined and perfected through the fundamentals of what we're doing with our instruments whether they're on the ground or in you know in the air they're all as equally as important so thank you so much for sharing that journey with us we do like to leave you with a little weather wisdom as well um so Gemma is going to explain today why March comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb. So, yeah, as um, Ash mentioned, there's this saying that March goes, uh, comes in as a lion and goes out like a lamb. And we thought we'd just look at that and s- sort of see if there's any truth in that saying. Um, and there are times when that saying can be true. I mean, March, start of March, just tend to uh, be more likely to be wet and windy weather. Uh, but it's not 
true all of the time I mean we do get wet and windy weather at the end of March that follows us into April I had a little look back actually and in 2016 you know I love a factoid I uh, do love them in 2016 at the end of March we actually had storm Katie that tracked across southern Britain which brought mm. us strong winds so if that saying was true then you'd expect that storm to be earlier in the season in earlier on in March whereas it wasn't the case that year Whereas in March 2019, a lot of the rain that month did fall at the start of the month, whereas the end of the month was drier. So there is year to year variability just because it happens some years uh, doesn't mean necessarily that every year the start of March will be wet and will end it on a drier note. But there might be years where that is the case. I think as well, though, March is one of those like really fundamental transition months in seasons where you still get, you know, those extremes. You still have the legacy of cold. You're only starting to rebuild your heat reservoir again. Mm -hmm. You're gaining daylight much more rapidly. So the beginning of March can feel really, really different to the end of March. And I think normally by the end of March, obviously we have exceptional years like, I don't know, 2018 we had a you know a very cold april but um i think you can sort of say by the end of march you put away your winter coats you probably put away your gloves or you know you're not so terrified of of all of the cold out there but anyway that's where march comes in like a line and goes out like a lamp comes from so thank you so 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 much for joining us today please subscribe rate review and share the podcast if you like it you can follow us on instagram that's for the love of weather or on twitter we're not really happy about this name but we have to do it it's number four love of weather you're getting a certain amount of characters but most importantly myself and Gemma hope that after having a chat with John today and listening to the episode that you leave this podcast just loving the weather that little bit more thanks for listening bye 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 